0: Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us, get your tickets at hollyroodsources.com forward slash live. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign. A dram of whiskey, of course, is one of life's little pleasures. But have you ever wondered how many units of alcohol are in the glass? According to the Scottish Government, around 8 out of 10 of us in Scotland don't know how many units of alcohol are contained in common drinks like a pint of beer or a glass of wine. The Made to be Measured campaign seeks to change that For example, a single measure of Scotch whisky, Scotland's world-famous national drink, contains one unit of alcohol, while a pint of average-strength beer contains more than double that. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Savour your Scotch and find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. The podcast starts now. government's job to be bold and ambitious
1: because the challenges we face
0: some of them are frankly existential. The climate emergency is an existential threat and therefore it's not simply good enough to take action at the fringes what we've got to do is be bold in the action that we're taking. So again without giving away what I'll be saying in the programme for government you can expect absolutely a bold and radical programme from this government. I'll be up front some of that will be challenging in relation to uh, we've got to take people on the journey uh, with us we know that particularly when it comes to tackling the climate emergency but i'll never shy away from being bold and ambitious Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 9th of August. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thanks for finding us. Thank you for being there. Make sure you press subscribe and follow. There's lots of excitement on the podcast at the moment because next week we've got the First Minister Hamza Yusuf joining us. I say us because also here Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello Jeff. Good morning. And also joining us still from Lewis, still seemingly on holiday, perpetual holidaymaker, Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. That was when you used to work, Andy, back in the day.
2: Yes, yeah, when I used to work in an office. Now I just work wherever I am because wherever I am is actually not Lewis today. You are, you're Australia. Oh, I can't believe you can't spot a Lewis morning sky. I have transferred probably about 600 miles directly due
0: south because I'm now in Southwest Wales oh sorry gosh it's I mean it's beautiful scenery blue skies it's an easy mistake to make a very easy mistake to make (laughs) Uh, (laughs) anyway thanks for being here Andy and Jeff Uh, right next week is uh, the Hamza Yusuf episode so this time next week instead of just listening to the three of us you will be listening to the three of us plus the first minister which is very very exciting actually for us um I think it's, I think it's come together. I think we're guessing there now. I, I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit about next week in terms of what, what you guys are expecting, I suppose, from the episode, just so you know, by way of how it will be, um, there will be a, a sort of conversation between the four of us. So Jeff, Andy, myself and Hamza Yusuf. And we're taking questions as well from the audience, from you uh, who are coming along. And you can submit your questions on the night. Don't feel you have to think of them too far in advance. But I think that's an, an extra little bit of um, excitement, actually, because we always talk about the news issues, the current issues of the moment. And obviously you get the second to second to none analysis from Jeff and Andy every week. But actually bringing your concerns to the First Minister is something that I don't think you get to do that regularly, actually. Um, so that's a bit of excitement. Andy, what are you expecting from, from next week, from our kind of extended sit down with the first minister again perhaps of a format that is unusual to hear to hear him in because we're so used to those short snappy clips on the news etc. I mean it's what this podcast does but getting the actual first minister in that format is actually quite a prospect.
2: It is and he'll be and it's his best format Um, because actually when when you get Hamza Youssef in a longer more relaxed format than that his character comes through a bit and his abilities come through as well. As he said himself over the last couple of days, he has his, and we've talked about it before in this podcast, Hamza has his abilities questioned, not just his direction and his policy and so on, but he has his ability questioned, his intelligence questioned in a way um, that neither of his SNP predecessors um Nicholas Consorge and Alex Salmond have had so he does have that to contend with. Jeff and I both know Hamza Yousuf and have uh, worked with him in different capacities before me and you know Jeff uh, when he was chief of staff to Alex Salmond and uh, uh, and more recently in his capacity uh, running True North and me running message matters and we both know that the guy has uh, has abilities and he has uh, you know has an ability to do this job. And I think that will come through a lot more in the podcast. I think the interesting thing about this podcast as well is that we're going to combine this longer format where we ask people on to have a discussion. We're not interrogating them. It's a, it's a discussion, but it's also a probably a more informed discussion than he'll be having elsewhere in the Edinburgh Festival because he's having it with people who are actually involved in Scottish politics and in Scottish business life on a day-to-day basis. So that combination of probably deeper... Um, Political and policy questioning and the long format I think people will see Hamza Yousuf at his best, and they can make their judgment on
0: that do you agree jeff
3: yeah i um, yeah I agree with that uh, andy's uh, uh kind of characterization of of the approach that I think we'd seek to take I think for me um if you were to kind of describe Hamza's tenure in office so far, it would be. Uh, again, characterised by um, efforts to try and somewhat clear the decks from a policy perspective. He's dealing with a lot of uh, residual things, uh, issues that we've covered extensively on this podcast. Uh, that he's sought to to, to find some nuance and um, tried to rectify policies. What I'm really keen to get out of him is what can we expect going forward. So he's got his programme for government uh, um, uh, following a recess. I think that's his first. Opportunity to provide a Humza stamp on this government. And I'd like to see what that's going to entail. And furthermore, I think it would be really interesting, as Andy points out, to tease out some of the, the more uh, very Scottish political issues that he's going to have to contend with. We've had Fergus Jung on here talking about the A9, the A96. We've, we've talked about the green relationship and what that means for economic growth. Where does the business community sit in terms of his priorities? I'd really like to tease these things out of them. But most of all, as I say, I want to find out how's he going to put his stamp of authority on this government in terms of uh, his leadership? And And I think it's going to be a fascinating uh,
0: session in that regard. Mm. He has been speaking on a couple of podcasts. He's got a couple of podcast bookings at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. That you've alluded to Andy, and there's a couple of headlines from from these even today. Uh, this one from the Guardian. Hamza Youssef, I don't believe Sturgeon knew arrests were pending before resignation. He's acknowledged that, quote, everybody wondered if the real reason for Nicola Sturgeon's resignation was because she knew that she and her husband were about to be arrested as part of the police inquiry into the SNP finances. Uh, Of course, they have uh, since been released without charge. Um, But he was saying that he felt a little bit um, as if he'd ended up answering for issues around party transparency that were not his fault. But he says as well that he genuinely believed Sturgeon when she said she had no idea of the direction of the police investigation. Um, that's got a few headlines. Also, the picture of the tent on the front uh, front grass, so the front garden of uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Peter Murrell's house, has resurfaced. This is in the Telegraph. First Minister acknowledges police investigation into SNP finances had cut through with the public... Um, and so it's, I mean that's just that is a chance for the, for these pictures to resurface and it it just makes it difficult for for Humza Yusuf to get away again from from nicholas sturgeon 's legacy so i 'm interested in what Jeff was saying there Andy, about looking forward actually with the first minister um i think I think we try to do that. we always try to be constructive, we always say that, but that is what we 're trying to do in these conversations and to try to learn and to understand about and in this case, yeah a way forward, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think everybody who's been on,
2: all the politicians who've been on the podcast so far, I think would feel and do feel that it has been uh, constructive as an opportunity for them to see what they think. And I think Hamza will think the same thing. Look, we've, Jeff and I, I think, have both at separate times been um, been constructively critical of Hamza Youssef's media strategy, um, especially in the early days of his leadership um, when the police investigation I was going to say was at its height. Uh, I suppose it was It was certainly more in the public eye than it is right now as we speak. Um, and it, it did at times feel, I mean, I used this phrase before, it did at times feel like he was a spokesman for Nicola Sturgeon. Mm. Um, and some of that was circumstance that he couldn't really do anything about. But I felt that some of it he walked right into, to be honest with you. So, you know, even... Uh, it will be interesting to see what approach takes next week. And I don't think it's the sort of thing that we will seek to talk about all that much. I think the people in the room and us uh, and the business community are more interested in hearing what he's going to do rather than hearing what he thinks about the police investigation. But um, it will be interesting to see how he handles questions in general around Nicola Sturgeon because not just because of the police investigation, but also because of the policy legacy, which looks a lot more shaky now than it did Six months ago, let's say, it'll be interesting to see how much he's prepared to distance himself from decisions that she has made in the past on policy, decisions that she has made in the past on strategy and so on, and whether his friendship with her and his loyalty to her um, still uh, leads him to a position where he doesn't quite feel like he can make a radical break from some of what's been done in the past.
3: Mm. There's, the, there's an interesting thing about why he might be doing all these uh, festival appearances beyond just the, the obvious opportunity to to, to get his uh, arguments out there. I do wonder if he's feeling right now that the traditional media, so to speak, isn't giving him a fair crack of the whip. And he's feeling that if he's got a lengthened um, opportunity to have a real conversation and discussion, he can try and go over and above Uh, the the traditional media and land some messages. But Andy's point's right. That only works if you're willing to be pretty bold and to uh, chart a new course that really gives a sense of who he is as First Minister and what he wants to achieve. And I think one other thing I'd really like to tease out of him is the gravity of the situation that he is in and the SNP is in. Does he really feel that this is a crucial precipice that he's um, uh, teetering over right now. I'd argue that it actually is. And and it's not just because of the polls, it's because of the people that are actually going into uh, uh, the ballot box just now. And, 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 and we've seen a number of local by-elections. I'm sure there's uh, uh, particular interest uh, issues of interest in each of these locations. But we've had quite a geographical spread from Aberdeen and into the central belt of recent by-elections all showing the same thing, a big um, uh, kind of transition away from the SNP to other parties or the, the SNP vote isn't uh, coming out. Either way, that is a serious situation. What is he going to do to arrest that? And I just want to know directly from him, does he accept this is a massive challenge he faces, uh, not just
0: from a policy perspective, but electorally as well? A little preview then of what you can hear this time next week on the podcast. So thanks to those of you who've got tickets who are coming along to Johnny Walker Princess Street. Uh, thanks to the Scotch Whiskey Association and their Made to be Measured campaign who are making all of that happen, of course. And if you're not coming along but you would still like to raise something for our attention and for the attention of the First Minister then of course you can email. The email address is hello at com if you'd like to get in touch. Uh, somebody's done just that, Colin, who describes himself as a former SNP member. Uh, says, uh, loving the podcast. would be grateful if you could ask the following question to Hamza. Election strategist James Carville famously coined the phrase, it's the economy, stupid, for Bill Clinton's 1992 election campaign. What do you say to critics in your own party that feel that you've prioritised divisive identity politics over sound economic policy? So that's what Colin's after. Colin, we've got your email saved. Thank you. If we've time, we'll get to it with Hamza Yusuf next week. Uh, you can send your questions to hello at hollywoodsources.com. Right. Speaking of emails, you will remember on last week's podcast, uh, we had some Jeffology from Jeff Aberdeen, the Jeffologist. Uh, Jeff, this was to do with uh, Margaret Ferrier, the recall petition and what you were extrapolating from that and what it will mean for the by-election result. <laughs> you can listen back to that on last week's podcast. Um, Jeff is smiling smugly because he knows what I'm about to read. Hey, Callum, Andy and Geoff. Firstly, let me say I'm immensely enjoying the podcast. It's become valuable in the nascent and growing Scottish political podcast ecosystem. Interviews with folks like Fergus Ewing, who's regularly found himself the main character of Scottish politics, but we rarely hear from in a long form interview format, are particularly insightful. Side note, compliments get your email read out. This person goes on. I just finished listening to your latest episode, including Jeff's analysis of the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by election. Jeff preempted people out there, like Professor Sir John Curtis, coming after him for his analysis. Still, I wanted to say that, as someone who has written widely about Scottish political polling and its interpretation in recent years, I found his take insightful and, to paraphrase the 538 folks, a good use of data. That highly motivated cohort who signed the petition is indeed likely to drive differential turnout that will go against the SNP. Many other arguments based on polls, modelling and prior lessons from by-elections in these circumstances back up his analysis. This is, is now. I, I, forgive me if I pronounce Mark's surname incorrectly, Mark M- McGagan? Is that how I would say Mark's surname? Who is a postgraduate researcher, PhD, politics, international relations, school of social and political sciences, university of Glasgow, basically giving Jeffology some credibility
3: yeah ridiculous and and i no but as you guys know um because i'm quite a modest person i I did urge you not to read that out callum Uh um but the fact that you have i think fair fair enough and uh, uh thanks to mark for his comments I mean this is this is this is kind of what I was talking about genuinely is um <laughs> does Humza recognise the scale of the challenge ahead of him yes and rather Glenn, but then in the elections to follow and then linking it back to Colin's email what does he have to do to try and arrest this apparent uh, decline or reversal in the party's fortunes and I think the economy will be central to that and I think it's safe to say that Andy and I will be uh, uh, to reassure Colin uh, putting arms on the spot on this. Uh, and not just the, the relationship with the Greens, I know that uh, Andy will want to, to get in on that, but just his broader vision for Scotland in terms of how he wants to be seen, him and his administration, uh, in terms of that business and economic growth Um, demands that I think, to be honest with you, if you drill it down, means job creation, means more prosperity. That is what uh, I think motivates voters. Uh, And I think Hamza has to come up with a clear, clear strategy on how he, he, he believes he's going to achieve that. I'll come back to that in a second. That's because that's an
2: important point. Let me. Mark McGeegan is a very accomplished uh, strategist um, and analyst of polling, actually. And I would encourage anybody to follow him on Twitter. He's also a very good commentator for um, pretty impartial views on uh, where the SNP, in particular, is going. But I mean, come on! He's had an absolute shocker there, has he not? <laughs> Given uh, he's uh, this is. I mean, I would describe that as enabling behavior <laughs> <laughs> towards Jeff aberdeen here and uh, I, I have to I, I have to give Mark an opportunity to email back and just retract everything that he said about <laughs> Jeff there i mean this is this is not going anywhere good anyway, listen on the economy thing and, and the the previous email that was read out as well um i I don't think it's an issue, and we'll, we're going to ask comes to this next week for me. Uh, as somebody who who operates in, from a personal point of view and and with my clients, the the SME sector in particular, um, I don't think it's about whether Humza thinks the economy is important. I think it's about how Hamza thinks the economy should be run. Mm-hmm. That's a really important thing here, um, and how those around him think the economy should be run. You know, if we we know that somebody like, say, a Neil Gray is very much committed to the business sector and the importance of the business sector and the fact that it is what creates the jobs and the wealth that pay for all the things that we want to to give to citizens of Scotland that's fine i think we need to know more about what hums's personal vision of the economy is what how does he I think an economy should be run um what does he think about those around him, particularly those in the Green Party around him, and what they think about how the economy should be run? So that's what I want to know more about. What is his actual economic vision? What are his? What's his economic foundation? Um, in terms of his. Uh, com- commitment to a capitalist economy, commitment to growth, um, and and all the other things that we've talked about mm. over the last few months. Uh, I think I think we need to know the fundamentals of Hamza's economic vision.
0: Still to come on the podcast today then uh, As we continue building up actually To the Hamza special episode next week With Hamza Yusuf the First Minister Uh, We're going to discuss this story this week Of civil servant spending Uh, Is that as big a deal as it's been made out to be Uh, Also we'll touch on education Because of course it's been exam results week And the latest criticism of the coalition with the Greens Uh, We'll do all of that in the next few minutes (laughs)
1: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. To become Scotch Whiskey, distilled spirit is carefully crafted before maturing in Scotland for at least three years, although it's often decades That's why Scotch whisky should always be sipped, savoured and enjoyed responsibly. The Chief Medical Officer recommends that adults who choose to drink alcohol consume no more than 14 units per week, but Scottish Government research shows that two-thirds of Scots are not aware of those guidelines. The Made to be Measured campaign seeks to build greater awareness of the responsible consumption guidelines and the units of alcohol contained in popular drinks. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. This is Hollywood Sources, thanks for finding us this week You've joined us the week before We have the First Minister on the podcast uh, That's dropping into your podcast feed next week Make sure you're subscribed and following the podcast And that way it will just appear in front of you As if by magic uh, Right, the story of the week this week Seems to be, at this point anyway uh, This story of civil servant spending On government un- Part of the Scottish government spending on credit cards uh, Lots and lots of it um, Will not raise particular eyebrows Stationery, technology, things that are required to run an office and to run a government. Things that have got the headlines are how much uh, the Scottish government under Nicola Sturgeon spent on travel, particularly on VIP upgrades at airports. Also on there, things like books, yoga classes, uh, these sorts of things. Um, Jeff, I'm going to come to you first on this. Uh, somebody who was in government, of course, uh, a few years ago. First of all, how do you feel when you see stories like this about about government spending and civil servant spending on credit cards in this way?
3: Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest with you here. Um, I have very little interest in these types of um, stories. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, if you Google expenses, costs controversies over, um, uh, you know, spending um, on what some people would say was frivolous things. You can go through every political party um, for the last 20 or 25 years, certainly that I've uh, been involved in in politics or commentating on politics. And it happens all the time. Um, uh, And uh, I just don't find them particularly moving. I'm much more interested in in politics, uh, in terms of policy terms and vision, uh, in terms of what they want to do with the country uh, uh, going forward. Now, that said, I'm not diminishing the story. It's a great story for um, uh, the media. And uh, clearly, I think there's been a leak somewhere in the Scottish government. That's interesting in itself. And, it's uh, and you know, they've dined out on it, uh, the media. But I do find some of the political reaction across the party is absolutely outrageous and uh, and whatnot. I mean, it, it's, it's it's funny. I mean, um, uh, when I uh, reflect on my career in Westminster, when I was in <laughs> Westminster, there was the Great Expenses scandal, mm. uh, if you recall, um, uh, uh, and there was parliamentary inquiries into it. Now, there was a lot of expenditure there from MPs that was rightly put uh, under the microscope, and it happened across political parties. And that's kind of my point. These things tend to happen Uh, in governments, in political parties, and rightly, they get the scrutiny that they deserve. Um, But one thing I thought was interesting about Hamza calling a review into uh, this is what is he calling a review into exactly? And I suppose I would be pretty careful to watch what that review turns out, because some of this expenditure, as you rightly say, Callum, is entirely legitimate. Some you might question whether it's necessary, but I don't see, and and correct me if I'm wrong, anything that was uh, potentially um, uh, totally Mm. uh, criminal or untoward, I'd like to see some things explained, Uh, but it's just a bit embarrassing for the government of the day and it happens across political parties so for me personally I just couldn't care less about these sorts of stories let's get back to uh, uh, the the political and policy uh, debates that I'm much more
0: fascinated by. Can I ask you, Jeff, because I am you know, fascinated to speak to somebody who's lived it, as you have. So one of the eyebrow raisers on this is that Nicola Sturgeon was apparently spending money on uh, services at airports, for example. And one of the companies that was used quite a lot for the <laughs> VIP treatment uh, says on their website that she'd be treated like royalty, or indeed any customer would be treated like royalty. Does a First Minister need that? I, I feel like in my own head... I, I can absolutely see. Yes, fly in business class. Get yourself away from the hubbub of a departure lounge into you know the the privacy of a of an executive lounge and board the plane first and all of that and keep away from people. Do first ministers need to be treated like royalty at airports? Yeah, I mean that's the
3: company saying treated like royalty. It's a marketing uh, spin. I, I, you know, I, I, my guess is the first minister was just looking. I mean, I don't know. Sure. In all honesty, I mean, the First Minister is looking for um, a, a quiet area to do some work or something beforehand. Um, I'm not sure. But I mean, my point earlier about this being across political parties. I mean, last week, the Prime Minister was criticised for taking a private jet up to Aberdeen, for goodness sake. And Nicola Sturgeon hasn't been taking any private jets for as far as I'm uh, uh, aware so um, does a does a prime minister, does a first minister need this? Um, I certainly think, given that they're running a country, there's an argument for getting through uh, security perhaps quicker, if they're running late, if their diary is um, under pressure and they're trying to get places. I think that's a reality of, of government politics. I mean, I'm guessing that happens across administrations around the world. Um, I do think that the the fact that this was leaked and that the, the fact that the Scottish government didn't provide any context or couldn't provide any context to to why this was necessary is probably part of the the answer here because we you know we are going to have to find out and we will find out through this review uh, why this expenditure was deemed uh, necessary. But again, I think it's a great hit for the media. I'm not knocking that. Um, <laughs> so I think it's one of these things that inevitably happens when you're in government. Andy, what do
0: you make of it all?
2: Um, yeah, I, I, I am probably even um, less bothered or more exercised about these types of stories than Jeff is. I think that the First Minister absolutely should get all the treatment they require in order to be as effective and efficient as possible. I am really, really tired. I understand why it's all come about, but I'm so tired of the way that we treat politicians in this country. Now, sometimes they bring it upon themselves, to be honest, but I'm really tired of it because we're asking for our politicians to do remarkable things um, with very unremarkable resources. Um, I've said this a lot before, that I think politicians should be paid significantly more money than they are. Um, You know, the first minister of this country earns a lot less than a lot of other public servants in this country. There are council chief executives, earn more money than the First Minister in this country. It is utterly ridiculous. Um, And the fact that we can't give a politician any perk or pay rise that might help them do their job, because we're so worried about what the reaction the newspapers will be, is actually just perpetuating all this stuff. So yeah, should the First Minister get fast-tracked through security and airport? Absolutely. They should be top of the queue. We should be spending any money we need to spend to make sure that these people can do their job for us the best they possibly can. The money we're talking about here in these stories is absolutely buttons <laughs> compared to the money that gets wasted by the public sector every single day on so many other things. So if we want to do a massive investigation into waste of public money, go and have a look at the NHS. Go and have a look at local authorities. That's where you're going to find the massive, massive waste of public money. You're not going to find it in core government spending on books and paper clips and fast-tracker security. I can't even bother at all. Um, and, you know, I would rather we try to develop a political culture where we actually had a little, it's just a two street, I get that, but where we had a little bit of respect for politicians and where we acknowledge the fact that we are asking them to do things which we would not ex- necessarily expect somebody on the salaries and benefits and perks that they are on.
0: Uh, Let's go on then to exams. And I suppose this lets us talk about education uh, as well today because it has been exam uh, results week in Scotland for, I think it was 140,000 school pupils across Scotland getting their exam results. And pass rates have fallen. Uh, The pass rate does remain higher than before the COVID pandemic for national fours, fives, hires and advanced hire. Uh, There's a suggestion basically that this is, I suppose, the beginning of the correction post-pandemic where perhaps grade inflation uh, took a bit of a hold. And there's also questions about the attainment gap, uh, which the Scottish Conservatives have picked up on, describing uh, as a source of shame um, and labour as well, uh, saying that the young people of Scotland deserve better than SNP failure. Um, The attainment gap was supposed to be one of Nicola Sturgeon's proudest achievement Jeff but um, at the time of her departure there, w- there wasn't really any progress to report on the attainment gap?
3: Uh, no uh, um, and that I think is something that will be brought up time and time again in, in the run-up to the next holiday election particularly. Um, I, I, if I may just deviate slightly on this question mm. um, because my, my my nephew received his Nat 5 results and, and you know he's done reasonably well in them uh, right. i think he'd like to have done better um and at the core of this of course is actually our young people younger generations and if i may and a total conflict here but um a client of mine is sfe um and the chief executive sandy begby uh, who's also uh the uh, chair of devel- developing our young workforce and he wrote a wonderful column which i'd recommend to anyone in the scotsman yesterday, um, you know, highlighting the fact that there is no wrong path uh, to success in terms of um, these exam results, if people are disappointed out there, then uh, that is not the end of the world by any stretch. There is an opportunity, regardless of that, for people to grow. And and, I, and one thing just on the politics of this, I thought it was really interesting, actually. Ross Greer from the Greens actually said, do we need to move away from these kind of big set-piece exams and have more holistic um, um, grading in terms of um, uh, uh, young people's attitude school That was an interesting contribution. I'm still not convinced around this particular part of the debate, but that's actually something around policy, which I think needs to be discussed. What are we doing for our children to give them the best opportunity to grow and prosper in their later uh, lives? Um, on the pure politics of it, yeah, its I'm sorry to sound so boring, but on the exams thing, if, if the exam results were um, better on average, then, um, everyone would saying, oh, there, that's, uh, there's not really that much um, uh, credence in that. This is what happens. People are just getting agencies. If they're poorer, then everyone says, well, oh, the SNP or whoever's in government is doing worse. It's the, it's the same knockabout. I don't think we're really getting to the core issue of the education, but I'm really most interested to have ask my erstwhile colleague, uh, Andy McKeever, on this, because I know he has strong, strong views on education, which are much more, mm. um, I think, insightful than I can offer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Andy, give us the insight. Give us the insight. Well, look, I mean, I think that um, the, the reality is insight in Scottish education is actually quite difficult because there's very little data. Um, a, a long while ago, 10, 12 years ago, I um, we pulled out of international comparators for Scottish education. Um, And since then, it has become very difficult to know how we're actually doing as a country. We've had this historic presumption that we're very good at education, which has been based on really nothing else um, but uh, but a kind of wish, rather than any evidence that we actually are. Um, the, the, The good news in that front is that Jenny Goldruth, the new education secretary, who was a teacher and who I have got a huge amount of time for, Um, and I really hope she's going to turn things around in schooling in this country, um, is putting us back into these international comparators. That's really good news, because for the first time in a long, long time, we're going to find out how we're actually doing against other countries, and that is critically important. Um, I uh, have four children in the state sector. Um, I have been utterly shocked at the ambitionlessness of scottish education um i think that we consign a lot of state school kids to poor outcomes i think we expect very little of them um i think that the closing the attainment gap policy uh, was obviously very laudable but the reality is it has had destructive effects because we have held back the excellence agenda for fear that the gap will increase. Uh, And what we have attempted to do because of the targets that exist and what has naturally happened, I think, in schools across the country, and it certainly happened in my kids' school, is that the attainment gap is being closed at the top rather than raising those at the bottom. Um, And that does absolutely nobody any good whatsoever. Um, It is linked, actually, to what Sandy Begley was saying about no wrong path, because he's absolutely 100% right. But what we've spent far too much time doing is trying to push people into a particular path, like university, for instance, and implying that if you don't take that path, somehow something has gone badly wrong. It's not the case at all. Um, I think that we have to... uh, There are very good arguments to be had. I think Ross Greer actually... And it'd be interesting at some point to have him on the podcast. Mm. I think Ross Greer has some good ideas around uh, the exams issue. I think exams should play a part. Um, and there's actually very good evidence that exams are good for poorer children as well. Um, but I think that continuous assessment has to probably play more of a role than it does without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But actually, this is a much more fundamental question about Scottish education now. We say it's about the economy, stupid. And yes, that's right. Actually, it's all about education because the biggest long-term risk to Scotland's economy uh, is not what we've talked about in the past, about investment in renewables. It's not whether uh, Hamza Youssef has committed to capitalism or whether it's not. It is our education system. It's about what we're producing at school level. And there are massive question marks uh, by parents. There are massive question marks uh, by teachers um, about whether and massive question marks by the business community and the employers in this country as to whether our education system is not just excelling, but is actually even remotely up to scratch.
1: Can I,
3: can I ask you, Andy, because I'm always fascinated to actually listen to parents who have children in our education system. And, you know, in the years that follow, I will be one of those parents. But uh, um, so far, poor uh, Lucas has to put up with my teachings <laughs> uh, as a baby, uh, which is uh, put him off at the... Uh, a disadvantage right from the get-go. <laughs> but I'm really fascinated to know what you just touched on there. Um, are we equipping our children with the skills necessary to meet the demands of the economy that we currently have or will have in the future? And, and and that point about not necessarily having to go to university I think is really opposite. I mean, we've talked a lot on this podcast podcast about the green industrialization of our country. And I was reading a stat the other day um, I think I'm quoting it correctly. That the average age of a welder or fabricator in this country is over fifty. We are going to need lots of these types of core skills if we are, and they are well paid as well. If we are to really be able to uh, meet the ambition uh, around offshore wind, around green hydrogen, around these new and emerging technologies. So, are we uh, equipping right now our children with the skills they need to have that opportunity to go into? Uh, vocations like that and furthermore do you see uh how would you assess the difference between primary school education and secondary school education right now because i know from speaking to my sister and brother but their kids that they have massive concerns about the disconnect between the two there's not a simple kind of um or smooth or seamless transition between the two i'm just interested in your views on that um, I
2: don't think there is a seamless track. A lot of it depends. I mean, I think one thing that's important to say is that what I have found is that the individual teachers that I come across on a day to day basis are usually extremely good, especially the younger ones, especially the newer ones. Um, they are full of ambition for their pupils. Um, and I think that's really good. But what has been very clear to me, I mean, fortunately, in both the high school and primary school that my kids are in now, fortunately, they, they now both have uh, very good head headteachers. Um, but what has been clear to me, actually, is just how important leadership is in schools. Um, and I mean, I'm not of the view that education should be run from the centre. I think education should be much more decentralised than it is. But I do think government has a massive role to play in ensuring that there are there are good leaders in schools. We have a leadership problem in Scottish education. We have a problem with creating good head teachers. And we have a massive problem with getting rid of bad ones. Um, and I think that uh, has a massive, massive part to play. In the outcomes of kids at schools across the country is the identity of their head teacher and what their leader is like, uh, and whether or not their primary school in particular is equipping them for a life at high school. These are big, big questions, that are, and they're uncomfortable and difficult to answer, um, partly because we don't have any data and partly because we are, as a nation, reticent to admit that we might not be getting education right. So I think there are there are lots of those questions to add. In terms of the kind of equipping them for the economy of the future. I think we're actually reasonably good at identifying the need for uh, a deeper skills base and a wider skills base from school level. But I think in some ways we've actually done that um, at the expense of knowledge. Knowledge is also very important. Uh, And I think in some cases we've gone too far on the... Uh, the skills agenda not far enough in the knowledge agenda. And one thing, just to finish this off before we move on, which is um, an issue which I think is growing in significance across schools in Scotland. Um, Schools are not homes. We do not send our children to school for them to be raised as citizens. That is the job of parents. That is not the job of teachers. Um, And I know that teachers don't want to have to parent the children when they come to school they want to teach them they don't want to parent them they're tired of parenting them and i think that parents need to understand that they are not sending their children to school to be raised they are sending their children to school to be taught and i think if we can reset that really basic balance as well because that that balance has gone completely wrong especially during the covid period and since and we must redress that balance as well children are raised at home and they are taught at school, and that is a really important um, aspect to trying to recover Scotland's and Scotland's educational reputation as well.
0: I imagine there yeah, are good, fascinating, yeah, absolutely. I imagine there are parents and teachers listening to this. So, if you want to add, we'll uh, we'll 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 focus more on education as the podcast goes on. Uh, you can email hello at hollywoodsources.com. Callum, we
3: keep promising people to bring in, we keep promising bring in experts, but I would love to bring in somebody from the education sphere that could because I think this is a huge subject yeah definitely I think we'll, do, we'll definitely so many different dynamics exactly
0: we'll do an education focus I think once the once Parliament's kind of back in session and stuff in September we can really ramp these yeah. things up so uh, yeah add your voice to the conversation if you want to take part in that if you want to add to that hello at hollywoodsources.com is the way to get in touch uh, right we've a few minutes left of this week's episode a um, couple of things to mention both connected to the Greens um, shall we start with the news line this is from the Times today uh, who say that uh, senior S.N.P. figures have called on Hamza Youssef to end the party's relationship with the Greens over concerns that their policies are harming Scottish business. Uh, Fergus Ewing and Alex Neil, two former S.N.P. ministers, called for a vote On the SNP's pact with the party, it's now emerged that Neil Grey, the Economy Minister, raised concerns that interventions from the Greens were making businesses feel that Scottish government was against them. These are the emails released from Freedom of Information. Uh, Laws showed that uh, Neil Grey issued a direct warning to Lorna Slater, the Green Minister, about regulations on businesses. Uh, Right, who wants to go first? Jeff?
3: Yeah, this is really uh, interesting and revealing, and I think we will tease this out of... Hamza as well. The reason that we're given you remember when Hamza said um the, the partnership with the Greens was worth its weight in gold? What he's referring to there is making sure that you get your budgets passed and you've got a majority in uh, Parliament. I don't think people out there give two hoots about you know legislative processes and majorities and all the rest of it. They just want their politicians to get on and deliver. And what these kind of revelations kind of confirm is a lot of what we've been discussing on this podcast is that there is a lot of uh, angst and frustration within the SNP ranks and potentially beyond as well with this um, apparent anti-business. And maybe that might be unfair to the Greens, but that's the perception um, view uh, from uh, that party. And so what we need to understand is if it is worth its weight in gold, how will this relationship manifest itself going forward? Because clearly those in the, the SNP and senior members of the SNP and indeed in the government are voicing their concerns. So one thing I think certain is this relationship is going to have to change and evolve if it is to uh, stay uh, uh, in terms of the, the, the coalition. So I think that's the, the, the fascinating thing. One more uh, point, and, and I know Andy's talked about this a lot. I just don't think it is sustainable. For a party in government to be so opposed uh, publicly to the virtues of economic growth, uh, and I think that's something that will have to be addressed as well. I don't see how that can continue in its current guise this relationship if that kind of mantra is to, to to hold.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, we we've we there are a stream of SNP MSPs and former ministers and politicians coming out and saying they want to end the agreement with the Greens how many Greens are coming out and saying they want to end the agreement with the SNP? The answer is none. And why would they? Why would they? Yeah. <laughs> they have won the lottery without having to buy a ticket. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think there is, um, there, is de- there are definitely interesting questions to ask. I've said before, I've got actually a huge amount of respect for what the Greens have managed to achieve. I'm not, I, I am a, a free market liberal, I believe in economic growth. I think that economic growth is the best way to raise the level of everybody in the country, uh, including uh, and mainly, primarily those who are struggling the most. And it is the way that we pay for public services. So, you know, I'm not going to be persuaded uh, on that matter uh, of, of, of capitalism versus whatever the alternative uh, is desired. But I've got a huge amount of respect for their political strategy. You know, they are pound for pound the uh, the best in the business in terms of their influence at hollywood they have uh, on 8% of the vote, uh, they have taken a party which needed one extra vote in Parliament, and their price for that has been two ministers and two special advisers and massive power over a raft of policy areas. So hats off to them. They have absolutely nailed it. Um, and that's part of the reason, of course, why a lot of the SNP people are starting to say, well, hold on, what are we getting out of this? Because it looks like we're getting all the cost and none of the benefit. Um, So, you know, I think that there are... The the legitimate question, I think, to ask of Hamza Yusuf next week on the podcast and generally of the Scottish Government is to say, or of the SNP, I should say, is to say, how far is too far? What price is too high a price to pay for you to be able to comfortably pass a budget in Parliament? Because there must be a point at which they say too much damage has been done, and we now need to reverse out of this. I've never heard any of them, uh, even privately, I've never heard any of them actually put, uh, uh, quantify that and say this is, where it's, this is where it would go too far and that's where we would draw back.
3: Yeah, and just one thing to add to that, uh, Andy, I do think, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I do still think that there is risk in this for the Greens as well. So we have seen uh, uh, Green ministers uh, lead and take forward uh, the deposit return scheme now failed uh, and reversed. We've seen Green ministers lead and take forward the highly protected marine areas policy, now reversed, you could argue, failed. And we've now got a bit of a stooshie over the boiler system or the home boiler system that Patrick Harvey wants to take forward. And now Hamza Yusuf saying no, it's not going to be uh, as, as draconian as that. At some point, people are going to turn around, the voters are going to turn around and say, well, well, are the Greens any good as well? And so this could have this impact. I agree with you. The SNP are taking all the pain for none of the gain so far in all these policy areas, having to clean up the mess. But pretty soon, perhaps the voters will turn and say, "Well, maybe just is the Greens that are responsible." Which it turns, I believe, very neatly to our bet. Uh, which we might cover. Yes. I, I have to go, I'm afraid, for a train, but let's cover this perhaps. And <laughs> uh, the Humza podcast,
0: the ones thereafter. Okay, there's a tease for you. Uh, <laughs> well, that suspense. <laughs> that's sc- that Scott Rail schedule waits for no man. Uh, right, we'll do the bet next week. Um, I feel like it's going to get front page coverage in a similar way to The Vow, uh, but we'll do, we'll do the bet on next <laughs> week's episode. Uh, Jeff and Andy, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, thank you. So next week on the podcast then, it's Hamza Youssef, the First Minister, which we're looking forward to greatly. Of course, if you're coming along, we look forward to meeting you in person at Johnny Walker Princess Street next week. And if you're not coming along, well, you can still listen, of course, and you can still email. If you've got questions to ask, feel free to send them in advance. Hello at hollywoodsources.com. And if you've points to make as you listen to the First Minister on this podcast this time next week then we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, Do keep in touch. Hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. Thank you for being there. Please tell your friends. If they want to hear from the First Minister as well, then this is the time to share the podcast with them. Uh, We look forward to it. We will speak to you then from Edinburgh. Uh, Thank you very much and speak to you next week.